All right, at this time we're going to open our Bibles again and um, finish off this section in Habakkuk, uh, the third woe. So if you want to open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2, please. So Habakkuk 2, starting at verse 4, uh, starting at verse 12, sorry. And our theme, our text will be verse 14. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establisheth a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So far, let us pray. Great and holy God, we come before you. Indeed, Lord, to know you is the greatest thing that can um, be part of our existence. Lord, to know you puts everything else in perspective. To know you, Lord, is life and peace and health and joy. And so, Lord, as we meditate on this text this morning, I pray that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, O Lord God Almighty, that you would meet with us, that your word would rivet our hearts and our minds to your glory, to your name, to your majesty, to humble us. Lord, would you give faith where there may be the coldness of unbelief. Lord, melt the ice of our hearts and draw us to be, be malleable and humble and right before you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, as we finish off this third woe of the five in total, just a reminder that these woes were given by the Lord in a vision that started in chapter 2 as an answer to Habakkuk's kind of cries as to, okay, God, why are you bringing in a wicked nation like Babylon to judge the wicked people of Jerusalem and Judah? He doesn't understand. He's perplexed. And God has spoken, first of all, as the paradigm, the way to understand all these woes, the just shall live by faith. That's the right way to live. Or the others, many, many people, the people that walk in their own ways, are living in pride and vanity. And so these are the two poles that establish the vision. And the vision is really, um, they are, there is a cry of exclamation. It is a cry of shock and very sobering for us to hear. But as we see these woes building up, we see some sort of an escalation, some sort of a, a movement from judgment into hope. And so... This morning, we have three points to look up as we wrap up the third woe. They are these. They're long this morning. The glory of God promoted by Babylon's destruction. The glory of God known with increasing intensification. And the glory of God filling earth with highest gratification. So first of all, the glory of God promoted by Babylon's destruction. Notice the term, the glory of God. How can the glory of God Almighty fill the earth as long as wickedness continues? That is the backdrop question that really unleashes and unthreads this whole thing. First, wickedness has to be resolved for the glory of God to subdue and consume the whole earth. And therefore, it makes total sense to see the woe speaking of the judgment on Babylon, like we looked at last time, verses 12 and 13, being echoed or countered by, and not only echoed, but positively outstripped by 
the manifestation of the glory of God. It's not the same weight. Babylon's glory and the demise of Babylon are seen in a much greater, a much larger and eternal glory of God and his kingdom. They are not the same. Maybe you've heard of the term in uh, the Old Testament, and a, we have a Latin term for it, lex talionis, or lex talionis, depending on how you pronounce that. It means an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Well, here we see that Jehovah will act in judgment, giving uh, Babylon what she deserves, but not is he only going to satisfy justice as ought to be, he will go beyond justice, beyond lex talionis, to amplify the greatness of his worth. You see, everything from the beginning of Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is God weaving a picture of his greatness over all the earth and the heavens. And so if you have time this afternoon, I would encourage you to read Ephesians chapter 3 and to look around verse 10 where it talks about redemption being a display not just for earth, but also for the principalities and powers that they will behold the greatness of God's plan. And this is so intertwined as we see all these things unravel in Scripture. You know, I think we're so quickly shackled, as it were, by a short-term focus to living. You're busy with work, taking care of the kids, making sure schoolwork is done, all these things. And instead of lifting our eyes by faith every morning as we begin our days, we are so often right away busy, right away the wheels get rolling. But we should be lifting our eyes every morning to the sun of righteousness that is rising with healing in his wings. The horizon for the Christian is beaming with light that is coming. We should live with that kind of a hope, seeing that the glory of God is going to be one day fully displayed. Now, the glory of God is something that's part of who he is. We would call that intrinsic. It's his essence. And everything God has, his holiness, his love, his mercy, is all glorious. Everything is glorious. But what we see is that the earth is going to be filled with this. And so what is internal to God, his character, becomes external as he displays it in this world. You think about it, whereas Babylon is the emblem of a defiled character, right? Babylon, we saw in the verses here, it talks about uh, wearying. It talks about establishing a city by iniquity. That's her glory. She has a lot to boast of. Look at our pillars. Look at our walls. Look at the people of our nation and our lands and our empires. But all of it is infested with the rot of sin. It's ugly, the glory of Babylon speaks of in a heart that exposes man's problem. It is an empire built on extortion, slavery, oppression, and death. And so the glory of God, countering that, shines forth his character. So everything that God is building displays who he is. It is a kingdom that is not built on extortion, violence, and all that kind of stuff. It is built on love and sonship 
and mercy and life, so much the opposite of Babylon and man. So we see in this verse, kind of this counter, that out of the ashes of Babylon's heap, God is establishing the greatness of his worth and putting it on display for all of us to see. Do you remember in the Bible, in Exodus, where Moses asks the Lord, show me thy glory. And God's answer is, no man shall see my glory, my face, and live. And so Moses is told to go hide in the cleft of the rock, and God says, I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts but my face shall not be seen. And then it says in the Bible that the glory of God passes before him and he sees the backside of his glory. And how do, what do we hear? We hear a declaration. That's where the glory of God is placed, in a declaration of who he is. Listen to this. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Now you think of that with respect to the character of God Almighty. Do we not long for a world that is characterized by God's grace and mercy? You know, when I, I was watching a clip the other day on one of my feeds, and this man walks past just somebody at the bus stop, swings his arm, and throws the person down just because, just because he could. God doesn't build that kind of kingdom just because. It is a kingdom of mercy, grace, and truth. Who does not long for a kingdom where there is long-suffering? Where we live in a culture where I want it now, we get calloused, impatience, who doesn't long for a kingdom of goodness where all evil is done away with or a kingdom of truth where all the lies are exposed and no longer held and believed. We, we live in a world that is full of lies and that wants to now incriminate those who will hold the opposite. But God's kingdom just is a display of truth only. Can you imagine a glory where forgiveness abounds without one shred of compromised justice. It's amazing to think of. Forgiveness abounding, but justice will be fully established. And tell me, is true worship and adoration not the natural response when true glory is seen. And therefore, as Christians, though we live in a broken world, we are actually the most blessed people because we have this book that promises such a hope that will be established that the God of Israel, look in the text where it says, the glory of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the glory of Jehovah, Israel's covenant God, will have the last word. We are a blessed people because we know, we live with the knowledge that the broken will give way to triumph. 
and all of the darkness of this world, all of Babylon's glory, as it were, will fade as a dark cloud in the distance. Even today, if you go to the desert sands of Iraq, I've seen pictures of this hidden underneath the sands. It's the glory of Babylon. She is no more. And similarly, the city of man sorry, will be no more. And therefore, what does this mean for us? If you believe this, if we believe this, and we know this from Scripture, to seek and to honor God as our highest pursuit and as our chief end is the most worthy way to live because this knowledge changes everything. The glory of God gives purpose in a world where the wheels are spinning but they have nowhere to go. They got the brakes and the gas pedal both slammed hard. Nothing's moving. We live in a world where they don't know that but we Christians, we are invited to serve in that kingdom today, that glorious kingdom today and it will last. I recently asked a man, I actually asked three guys recently if they were religious, and they all had the same answer. No, didn't grow up with it. Don't have any reasons to think about it. And I said, do you have any purpose? Do you have any, any reasons to live? Do you know what happens to you after you die? Answer from all three. Never thought about it before. Purposeless existence. Vanity. And one day, they will check in. And they will render an account to the Almighty. Death is close. Do you account for eternity in the things you do here and now? That leads me to the second point. The glory of God known with increasing intensification. Remember I said last time that verses 12, 13, and 14 all have their echo in another prophet. Verse 12 was echoed in Micah. Verse 13 was echoed in Jeremiah. Well, verse 14... If you know your Bible a little bit, it should sound very familiar to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, where it says this. Speaking of God's future kingdom, it says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you notice it's slightly different? Similar? What's different? Isaiah says it will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Here it says the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That is because really glory always leads to the person. And so they're speaking of the same thing. Now consider this. It says it shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. The nation of Israel, the people of God and the nations will acknowledge that God is supreme over all things. Have you considered and have you thought about this idea that true knowledge, to know something truly, begins when you start with the true God? The knowledge of God is the most valuable knowledge you can have. To know things about cows and cars and kitchens while ignoring the foundation is derivative knowledge. It's distant knowledge. 
This is foundational knowledge. Is knowing God not worth more than the knowledge of all the textbooks in the world put together? Does the knowledge of God not put all other knowledge into orbit? And to deny the knowledge of God, the Bible says this is foolish. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. How many times haven't people been excited throughout history, and perhaps you have too, to meet rulers, to meet politicians, athletes, actors, but how few have any desire to meet God, to know God? Some people know a lot about sports. They can quote all kinds of statistics. They know the people who used to score so many goals and the, the heroes of the past and look at the current heroes. How can shooting a piece of rubber into a net be compared to the knowledge of him who fashioned every molecule that makes up both net and puck. The very atoms of all of us are held in his sovereign hand. Do you not want to know that God? Some people know a lot about cars or guns. Some people know a lot about kitchen stuff. Some people know a lot about child rearing. But do you know a lot about God? Who will compare the knowledge of computers, of zeros and ones, binary code, to him who commands the stars and calls them all by name? Have you considered what it means that the Almighty puts all the kingdoms of this world on notice? You thought about that. Every nation has an expiry date. And God has said that in his word. Do you know that God? Why does he put the nations on notice? The Bible tells us, Psalm 58, 11, so that a man shall say, verily, there is a reward for the righteous. Verily, he is a God that judgeth in the earth. There is a paradox in this whole idea of the knowing, the knowledge of the glory of God and knowing him. There's a tension here, isn't there? How can you know the unknowable? How can the limited grasp the infinite, the finite, the infinite? All of this means that this verse speaks of us as human beings being told that we will just tippy-toe, as it were, into the great ocean of the incomprehensible God as he puts himself on display in heaven and earth. And yet it is but the beginning of this great God we serve. And perhaps, perhaps that is precisely what this verse unveils. This knowledge actually tells us something. As we encounter this great God, we become smaller. He expands in the horizon, and the result, as we have this knowledge, highest worship. That's what happens. Who cannot help 
but marvel at such a great God. And therefore, when this text speaks of knowledge, don't go home saying, oh, I just learned a little more things about God. I have a few more notions about what Christians think. I have a little bit more ideas of what incomprehensibility might mean. A little more information in my head to answer for my parents. What did you learn at church? No, that's not the knowledge I'm talking about here. The glory of God and knowing him, knowing God this way is personal. It is foundational and it is fundamental. It is knowing him today already by faith. But then, as the Bible says, and as Paul just grasps with this thing, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he says, But then shall I know, even as I am known. That means the fullest extent of what a finite creature is will grasp into eternity to know this God. Oh, so be encouraged. I want to know this God more. Being courage that soon all the limits of this broken age will be eclipsed by the eternal. As the Bible says this in Revelation 22, and we shall see his face. What Moses was not allowed to see, the believer, and Moses as well, in eternity will experience as we encounter the great God of history. Which leads me to the last point, the glory of God filling the earth with highest gratification. Notice God says, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. You gotta remember throughout redemptive history, the glory of God was always contained in its revelation what was revealed was limited and it always will be throughout Israel's history the revelation of this glory came on the tabernacle came on the temple but what God says here is that the seams will burst as history will reveal a universal presence of God's glory the whole earth no longer just the temple the tabernacle, the vision, speaking to Israelites who still had the temple, you got to remember this, their minds are remembering all this stuff, repeats something else the Israelites would have known, something that God promised in an oath, where God swears by his own eternality, his own existence in Numbers 14, 21, where God says this, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. So the Israelites started connecting dots in this vision. Those of faith would consider the phrase as the waters cover the sea. The sea does not mean the sea itself. It refers to the bed, the bottom of the sea. And until recently, we didn't even know how deep the sea really is. It's incomprehensibly deep. Have you ever researched the depth of the sea? Your jaw will drop. Can you imagine to these people who only saw things disappear when boats went down and it wasn't seen anymore? 
And God says, my glory will cover the bottom of everything like a blanket. Because as the depth of the ocean unmasks how small and weak we really are, aren't we reminded of the unfathomable, incomprehensible God as he blankets his glory over every nook and cranny of this world. It will be in every aspect that his glory will radiate. It will be in justice. It will be in mercy. It will be in taking a broken creation that is straining and groaning and creaking under a fall and expanding this thing that we can't even comprehend how great it will be when God does this. When will this be? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it happened in stages because Babylon fell. And God's glory in judging Babylon was displayed as the then world saw Babylon's name eliminated from power in 539 BC. But that's just partial. We await final fulfillment. New Babylons will continue to rise and fall for Babylon represents the wicked city of man. And the triumph of the glory of God became definitive when history was pregnant and gave birth to the Son of God. Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. And the Bible promises this in the prophets when it says this, for thus saith the Lord of hosts. Remember, I talked about that term last time. The Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of angel armies. He says this, yet once it is a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory. When was that? That was when Jesus came to this world. That's when that was. And the Bible tells us how this all relates to the glory of God. When God will display himself in his son. The Bible says this. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word there to dwell by the way means to tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled. He tented among us. And then it says this. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. Paul, taking that theme in 2 Corinthians, will say this. For God, who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, hath shined in our hearts for the believer to give the light of the knowledge of what? the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To know Christ is to encounter what this verse unpacks. And what joy it is then for the believer, as we sang, to know Jesus Christ. To daily feast by faith on our great and glorious Savior, Aren't we so quickly contented with scraps when God has provided a rich banquet of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't it, isn't it just absolute foolishness 
to be held hostage by our brokenness, our doubts, our discouragements, our frail mindset, our worries about the future, about our children, when we are liberated into the glorious triumph of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. Believer, did this Jesus Christ not nail all of our sins to Calvary's tree? It is finished. We are now members of his kingdom. We are risen with him. We possess all things in Jesus Christ. That is the glory that has begun when Jesus walked this earth. And the glory of Christ, then, means that the expansion of his kingdom by preaching the gospel to the nations is equivalent to the expansion of the revelation of the knowledge of the glory of God. Think about that. As we herald Christ to the nation, and as the Spirit takes hearts and takes out stony hearts and puts in hearts of flesh that beat after him, as that gospel goes forward, changing lives, changing cultures, changing how we work, how we think, how we experience things, changes everything about you. That's what Christianity will do. When that happens, that is the same thing. It is equivalent to the expansion of the knowledge of the glory of God because it is all found in Jesus Christ. Knowing him is to taste that glory already. Oh, and when Babylon boasted so much, right? She boasted armies, she boasted castles and princes and cities and said, look at me. All her glory was stained with the black immorality. But as Christ's kingdom advances through the preaching of the gospel, the glory of his rule is seen. As suddenly, somebody that was once harsh starts to soften. As somebody that was once, I'll never forgive you, says, I forgive you. Babylon has her armies of spears and clubs and kills. The army of Christ is an army of saints. You know what that means? Holy ones. People that advance the good news and throw their life on the line for Jesus Christ. They bring peace. They love justice and mercy. Doesn't the glory of God just radiate and bring living water that refreshes and makes fruitful everything it touches? That's the promise of Scripture. You believe that? Will that then not compel us to unashamedly proclaim the gospel to the nations? Really? You know, I, I, I've been farming now for most of my life. And as I study scripture and synthesize, I'm bivocational, both vocations. You get people on the yard, oh, can, you, can I see the farm? Can I see the cows? Can I see the robots? Oh, that's a nice tractor. You know, it's all grass. It's all nothing compared to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Can I show you Jesus that matters most. That's everything. What are you living for? For all that grass? For the stuff that won't last? For the futility? You see, 
Destruction looms over everything and anyone who remains in Babylon. What's the most valuable thing you have? When somebody says, what matters most to you? What are you going to tell them? How many of you have sat for years in church like I have? But not once have you tasted glory. You heard about it. But you never knew what it really is. When, when will you stop being children begging for Babylon's candy and crying about the toothache it gives you? Because it does. Are you dissatisfied with the shadows of Christianity and long for the essence of Christianity? Perhaps that's you this morning. Your heart, you've never told it anyone, but your heart aches and says, yes, I want to know that Jesus. And he says, come unto me. He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's what he promises. The knowledge of Christ means jumping into the glory of the unending pleasure of knowing God himself. You plunge as a believer into the unending. That is great. And so today the word of God calls you to come helpless, naked, to freely receive that great gift of his glory. But you know, as we look at this text... When it says, as the waters cover the sea, it means that what Christ in his coming has begun will reach its pinnacle, its zenith, its goal. Evangelism one day will be over. Because to evangelize means to bring good news. Well, one day that will be ended because the trumpet will sound and it will herald the return of the King Almighty on that great day veiled justice will be displayed in perfect wisdom. Think about this. Two times in redemptive history will God put on display the greatness and the glory of his justice. What are those two times? It's a great question to ask people, by the way. What are the two times when justice goes on full display? And add to that <clears throat> this question. What is the one time when mercy and justice come together? So we got two and we got one. When is that? The first time when justice is fully put on display is at the Calvary's cross when Jesus died. And that is the same time when mercy is put on display. Because Calvary's cross is God's justice poured on his son and a merciful act that takes sinners and redeems them. The next time when justice goes on display is at the end when Jesus comes and separates the sheep from the goats. That is the time when the meek lamb of the first justice will roar with ferociousness like a lion. And all the cries of the innocent blood that was slain by Babylon. And all the screams and the pains of people and all the agonies of violence 
will be accounted for in perfect justice. But how much more the injustices done to God's people. How many missionaries haven't been killed bringing hope to the pagans? How many were not slain with Bibles open or praying while their mockers stood by and killed them? And the Bible says that those who were martyred for the faith cry out and say, O long, how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood? Them that dwell on the earth. And then taking all these concepts together, that is why this second act of justice, when the king returns, gets this label put on it, in Thessalonians. Listen to this label. Paul says, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. That act of justice is a righteous act for God. One commentator put it this way, justice is patient, but it will have her day. The waters of chaos on that day will be gloriously calmed. Does your heart, when you hear all these things and you think about them, not make you yearn with longing and zeal for the prince to come back? Why are we so rote in praying that great prayer where Jesus said to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you pray that? That is, that is an all-consuming petition. Is it not implied in prayers that we long for those things, that the ends of the earth will see the glory of God and that we of faith will bask in its fullness. Jesus says on that day, that great final day, when everything is done and the, the tares and the wheat are separated and the angels have done that work, he says, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Consider then that the earth shall be filled with that knowledge. That means unlike today where our knowledge of God ebbs and flows, where some days our internal delight in Christ is great, and sometimes you go through weeks and seasons of coldness and misery. I'm reading Andrew Fuller's biography, and I just got to the point. His wife dies. Two years, no entries. Before that, his daughter died. Three years, no entries. But get this. Every Sunday, Andrew Fuller had to go and bring the great word while inwardly he was agonizing. You see, the believer will wrestle, will go through trials. But as a light that never flickers, the glory of God 
will triumph in every, every Christian. Take that to the bank. Hope in that. Be encouraged as you struggle, as you want and you wonder and you, you worry. Believe the word. Have you ever, have you ever heard someone say, heaven sounds boring? Or some even dare to say, hell seems more exciting than heaven. What arrogant blasphemy. What a pitiful, ignorant view of reality. Are not the most exciting explorations and the most amazing discoveries of this world from the vastness of creation, the microscopic things in our DNA to the vastness of the starry hosts. And, and think in that category, but then to think of redemptive history, what God is doing as he shakes and moves nations and takes Israel and, and out of Israel brings the Christ. Are all of these not displaying, but the beginnings of this great God. And so, so then to say, boring, when everything on this earth is this handiwork, it's just a pitiful conclusion. Because the glories of that age, of that time, will outstrip this age. When the saints enter into the unbounded, eternal discoveries of seeing and enjoying God face to face. And when we've been there a thousand years, we will not even have begun to get one foot into the ocean of God Almighty. Forever and ever, we will explore the greatness of the God who has made this world redeemed this world and brings us into the next. You see, eternity with God will always be increasingly joyful. We will leap for joy every day on the vast horizons that are yet to be explored of this limitless God. Boring? Exciting something I long for. I long that we all one day will be there. Joy here, your best joys here are but tasting the drop of the honey from the honeycomb. What does this mean? It means, people, the world, and I say this carefully, as it now is, is not home. Because the glory of God will change this world. Our best deeds now are always clouded by the filth of inward sin. Our bodies now are wrinkling, graying with passing years. But on that day, everything will sparkle without any tint of sin. God, it says in Scripture, will wipe away all tears from our eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things 
the things of this age are passed away. Babylon must and will be destroyed to give way for that great day of glory. The vision promises that Christ triumphs will cast into the dust bin of history all of the shocks of Babylon's wickedness. You won't remember because it will pale in comparison. It's not worth comparing, the Apostle Paul says, with the glory that is coming. Does this not take away then to think on these things? The gloomy outlook that you might have when you read the news about stolen elections, about famines and wars and political backstabbing. Doesn't it take away the heartache of sad things in this world like divorce, the sadness of cancer and death? People, each one of us, young, old, wherever you are in life, we were made to know and love God. We were never designed to be paupers. You know what that is? Miserably poor people in Babylon. What a mercy that God calls people like us undeservedly out of Babylon's dump to be children of Zion's splendor when heaven and earth will come together on that great day, Christian, we will all be there together. And so begin every day with a humble heart of thanksgiving, looking upward, looking onward, being hopeful. And I will end with Jonathan Edwards, who put it so well about heaven and earth uniting and heaven. He says, heaven is that place alone where our highest end and our highest good is to be obtained. God hath made us for himself. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. And the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Amen. Let us pray. O oh, great God, to meditate on these things is to meditate on your rich promises, the hope we have. And Lord, we might have come here this morning with all kinds of fears and concerns and worries and busyness. 
Father, please still our hearts to behold you by faith and to find in you a resting place. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and the morning star. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.